And so, if you would, you have your Bibles. We've been in a study through the book of Romans, and we'll be coming back to that. We have this focus on trusting God, and then we will be into the Advent season, and we'll have some uh, times in teaching on that focus as well, and then come back about the first of the year back to our journey through uh, the great, uh, glorious book of Romans in the Bible. But this morning, if you would, uh, give you a little extra time to turn to two books of the Bible, Haggai and Malachi. Haggai and Malachi. And uh, I could announce the numbers on the Bible provided, but I didn't want to, just out of a little bit of spite. Okay, <laughs> no, just not really at all. But just turn, uh, if you get to Matthew, make three left turns and you'll be at Haggai. One left turn, you'll be there at Malachi. We're going to be looking at a couple of passages there. We'll begin the little book of Haggai in just a moment as we talk about trusting God. Now, let me just address any tension that might be uh, here as we get into this focus, this topic. Uh, I was thinking about it. Record inflation, financial markets are unstable, 401ks, no one wants to look at them these days, the economy is in recession, there's national and international instability, who would choose a time like that to talk about generosity and giving to God's work. Why are you looking at me like that, okay? <laughs> you, you shouldn't be looking up here at me. Really, look up there to God. Because that's exactly, that's exactly what God would do. It's exactly what God did, as we're going to see in a few moments. And it's exactly what God does. God, in times of challenge, even in times of crisis, he proves to us over and over again, he is the Christ for every crisis. And he is the Lord of all situations. And so the Lord teaches us in times of challenge, maybe more than ever before, his incredible faithfulness if we trust him and so his message and I want this to be the theme of our message this morning but it is God's message as you'll see in just a few moments that to a people in time of economic challenge in a time of instability in a time when there was not great safety around them here's what God said Trust me, test me. Trust me, test me. That's what God said then, and it's what God is saying. Because remember, when our God speaks, he is the eternal God. He speaks the living word. And he's saying to us today, in a very timely season, trust me, test me. Now let's begin here, if you've turned to Haggai, 
Let's turn here. I want us to look at a historical situation. I want us to look at a historical situation. Haggai and Malachi, along with Zechariah, the last three books of the Old Testament, are also prophets. They are sometimes referred to as the post-exilic prophets. The post-exilic prophets, which means prophets to Judah after their exile, after the exile. Many of you may remember, but let's just set the timeline. Where are we here in the chronological timeline? In 586 B.C., 586 years B.C., Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah for the third time and carried off practically the entire population as slaves. And after 70 years of that captivity, the first of the Jewish people returned to their homeland. And we are told that out of the millions that were carried away into captivity, only about 50,000 people or so returned. Now when they returned, rather than recognizing what God had done for them, rather than an expression of their national repentance and desire to honor God first and rebuild the temple, that's not what they did. They immediately went up into the forest, cut down the trees, and began to build for themselves houses, lovely houses, and they settled there. And year after year went by without the rebuilding of God's temple while the people built their houses. And that's when God spoke through his messenger Haggai a very clear message to those people about their priorities. And let's listen to what God said to these people who were pouring everything into their dwellings but had forgotten the house of their God. Here's what the Lord said. Haggai chapter 1 verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you are never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag of holes. With holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. 
You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and all their labors. Now this was God's message to his people who had returned. And no, they no longer were worshiping idols, but he certainly was not their priority. And the people, were told, responded. They responded. And they did as the Lord said. And we're told in the word that there was a season of renewed devotion to God. And we're told that there was a, a season of renewed joy of the nation before the Lord because they had honored him they had obeyed him, they had trusted him, and he had poured out his blessings upon them. But with the passing of years, and when it seemed like to people that Zechariah's prophecy of a coming messianic kingdom was not being fulfilled, slowly, imperceptibly, but continually, the nation drifted into a season of spiritual coldness once again. A season of spiritual corruption where even the ministers and the ministry had become corrupt. And they, the nation slid into a season of compromise, violating the very basic covenant promises that they had made with God. What was the problem? The underlying problem of everything was once again, the people had drifted back to a culture of self-focus and self-gratification. My needs, my wants, my fulfillment, me first. That is what permeated the nation and it led to all kinds of expressions of things that were contrary to God. But God never leaves himself without a witness, does he? Never. And God raised up another prophetic voice and that was the voice of the man Malachi. I want you to turn now just a few pages back to Malachi. Who is now the messenger a number of years later after Haggai. But still speaking to the nation that has returned from Babylon. And through his prophet, I want you to see Jehovah God makes a divine declaration. A divine declaration. Now notice what this declaration is all about. If you take the book of Malachi, 
It's a declaration of several things. Now, first of all, you would think the first thing that God would do to a people like that would be to denounce them. And he rightly could do that. But what's the first thing he does? He makes a declaration of his devotion to them. A declaration of devotion. Look at chapter 1 of Malachi, verse 2. God says, I have loved you. Now stop there. It means, I have loved you in the past. I still love you now. My love is a covenant love. It will continue with you. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Questioning his love. Is not Esau, Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob. What's he saying? I chose you. I chose you, descendants of Jacob. You are my chosen people. I have set my special love on you. So God declares his devotion. He says it's eternal. I have loved you. Now look over at chapter 3. His, his attitude, his heart toward his people is unchangeable. His devotion is unchangeable. Chapter 3. Look at verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. <laughs> What's he saying? My love and devotion to you is immutable. It does not change. If my love was a changing love toward you, I want you to know you'd be consumed. But my love is unchanging. It's immutable. So he makes the declaration of his devotion. He says it's eternal. I have loved you. He says it's unchangeable. And then he says, trust me, it's intentional. It's intentional. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. That promise that has been made by me, I will keep. Behold, chapter 3, verse 1. I send my messenger. It, in God's mind, it's already done. I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, that is the Messiah, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord. The Lord says, I have promised the Messiah. I have promised that I am coming. And I will appear suddenly. And that promise is unchanging. And don't we thank God for that? That in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And in the fullness of time, my friend, he will come again. He will come again. Absolute devotion. It's eternal, unchangeable, and intentional. Messiah will come. But now also notice, Jehovah makes a declaration of his displeasure. A declaration of his displeasure. What is it that 
he charges them with? Well, there's one overarching charge that's manifested in three ways. But the overarching charge, which is what Malachi's message is, God is saying, you are dishonoring me. The things that you are doing and the things that you are not doing, the great wrong of it all is you dishonor me, your father, your king, your deliverer, the one who has loved you, loves you now and will love you forever and who is sending the Messiah. You are dishonoring me. And the book of Malachi says there's three areas. There's three areas that God says through Malachi, you are dishonoring me. If you'd like just to study it on your own, chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 9. He says, in the ministry of the temple, how you go about worshiping me. And the ministers of the temple... How they are serving me. Dishonor me. You dishonor me and you bring the things to me that are sick. You bring the things that are an afterthought. And then the priests receive them. And the idea, if you read it carefully, is the priests are actually, they have a scheme going on here. Making themselves rich. Turning the whole religion of Almighty God into a profit-making scheme. That's what the Lord says. You dishonor me. Even in the way this ministry is being carried out. You're dishonoring me. And then chapter 2 verse 10. Through chapter 2, verse 16, he says, You're dishonoring me in the way you go about your marriage covenant. You are dishonoring me with this throwaway promise that you make toward your covenant husband and wife. And the children are being affected by this. The children, the, the descendants are being turned into all kinds of problems and disruption it's polluting my people God denounces this throwaway kind of approach to marriage among his people he says notice this it dishonors me who has brought you together then the third way that God says that they are dishonoring him, he says, you're dishonoring me in the ministry and the ministers. You're dishonoring me about marriage and you're dishonoring me with money that you consider to be your own. When the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, you're dishonoring me by not honoring me with your giving. And here's how the Lord says it in chapter 3. Here's his word. Notice chapter 3, verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and you've not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. Isn't that an incredible invitation? 
return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But notice this proud response. But you say, how shall we return? How shall we return? We're your people. Everything's great. Hey, we're, we're, we're going there to the temple. We're doing what you told us to do. And the Lord says, how shall you return? Well, consider this way. Verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You say, how have we robbed you? God says, in your tithes and your contributions. You are cursing yourself with a curse. For you're robbing me. The whole nation of you. Three years ago, Susan and I were actually on our way to Romania, Emil. And uh, we were going to be speaking there at the conference. And so we flew into London. It had been a kind of a dream trip. We stayed over about three days and just walked around the center of London. It was a jolly good time. <laughs> but I remember this happening. We were right on the main promenade along the Thames River. If you've ever seen the Eye of London, that huge, huge, what is that? A Ferris wheel, okay? I started to call it carousel, and I'd have gotten corrected and, and gotten bitter about it. Okay, so that's Ferris wheel. And we're standing there. Well, this thing is so broad. People are walking. It's just an amazing place to be. You're looking over at the houses of parliament. And it, it, it's, a, it's incredible. And they have these street performers that are everywhere. Okay? And it amazed me, one man was playing the violin like I've never heard. He had about three or four people. But there's this other man doing gymnastics. Amazing feats of gymnastics. And there's a huge crowd around him. And so Susan did not want to listen to the violin like I did. You know, being a person of such, you know higher aesthetic qualities, but no, no, no. <laughs> she wants to go see this acrobat. So we go there, and see, it's, it is amazing what the man's doing. But now he says, let's get the crowd in. Let's, he says, now clap, and if you clap more, I'll do this. And so everybody clapped more, and he did more things. He said, now clap louder, and I'll do more. And then he said, now everybody, 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 get their hands up. Everybody get their hands up, and I'm going to do this. Do you think I can do it? And he said, oh, your hands aren't up. I can't do it. He's get your hands up, and everybody's putting their hands up. And, you know, I've got my hands up. Everybody's got their hands up. And I said, wait a minute. Something doesn't feel right. You know, it, looking around, it looks like we're all being robbed. <laughs> and so, huge mass crowd. I looked down, and Susan had her handbag over her shoulder, and a man's hand was going in there and had hold of her phone, pulling it out. 
Well, in Christian love, I grabbed his hand, okay? (laughs) It was not softly and tenderly, but I grabbed it. And it was the end of August, and he slipped out, and of course, they've got an escape plan. He's gone. But, you know, that kind of traumatized us. I thought about that. I mean, I actually, here's this hand going into your wife's shoulder bag and got a hold of her phone, and it's coming out. And I'm just feeling like violated. Who would... Who would do such a thing? Just walk up and rob someone like that. Here's a question. Will a person rob God? Would a person actually try to pickpocket God? What does God consider being robbed? You know, it's not up to us to say, God, what do you consider being robbed? He tells us what he considers being robbed. He says here, you have robbed me. How have we robbed you? You've robbed me in your tithes and your Offerings, you've robbed me in withholding what? My honor. Does God need the money? No, he's okay. He owns it all. But by their holding back of giving to God, not fulfilling the requirements that God had given to his people under Moses, partially giving God says, I'm, I'm being robbed by you. You're dishonoring me. So if you were God and you thought you were being robbed, how would you respond? Isn't it good that we're not God? How does God respond when he says, I'm being robbed? Listen to God's amazing love. Listen to how he responds. Listen to how gracious he is. Because having made this declaration of his displeasure, he makes a declaration of an invitation. He gives the people who have been robbing him, his people, an invitation. And what's the invitation? Trust me. Test me. Trust me, test me. Here's how he says it, verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open... The windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer, the one that's taking away your food, the the insects in that agrarian society, the blight. 
and will no longer destroy the fruits of your soil and vine in the field shall not fail to bear says the Lord and then here will be the outcome as you do this and I pour out my blessings upon you then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight says the Lord you will have a testimony that there is a God in Israel kind and gracious who blesses his people who trust him and put him to the test, they will have a testimony. And the nations will know that the Lord, he is God. There's no Lord like him. Now notice, this is an amazing exhortation. Listen to me, church. As far as I know, this is the only time in the Bible... God says, test me. God says, test me. How reluctant would we be to test the Lord unless God said, I'm telling you, test me. This is the only time God says, put me to the test. He says to his people here in this season, bring the full tithe. The idea here is, you're, not, you're bringing a partial. You're bringing leftovers. Bring the full tithe. What's a tithe? Most of you know it means the tenth. The tenth. The first tenth. Of all that I have given to you, the, all that I provide for you, bring that tenth. The first tenth to me. And then he makes an amazing promise. He says, test me. Do this. And then he makes an amazing promise. Verse 10. See if I will not open the windows of heaven. And pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. This is an amazing promise. What is God saying? He is saying, I will be your provider I am Jehovah Jireh. I will be your provider. I will pour out a blessing upon you and upon your possessions. I will bless your labor, not your laziness, but your labor. Your, your crops will produce. The vines will bring forth. Whatever your hands are doing, God will bless your labor. And as you bring that to me, you, you will have a witness, a personal witness to say, look what my God has done. So we have this exhortation. Test me. Trust me. And how did the nation respond? Well, we're not told. We're not told. It's open-ended. So, perhaps it's open-ended because the question is for us today. How will we respond? How will we respond? And so let me close here. For each of us, to consider a personal application. 
Now, I want to clarify something. I know some Bible scholars here already working it out. Long grace. This is from the Old Testament law. These people were under the Old Testament covenant of Moses. We are new covenant believers. We are believers in in Christ. We have a new covenant. We're not under the commands of the old covenant. We're under the guidance of the new covenant. And that is true. It is different. There is a difference between a New Testament believer in Jesus who is a citizen of the kingdom and a a member of the family of God and someone who was a Jewish citizen under the Mosaic Covenant. However, what I want you to understand is that the principles are timeless. The principles here are timeless. The application has to be personal. So as believers in Christ under the new covenant, no, we are not under the old covenant legislation which was very specific to the nation Israel about the giving of tithes. And if you do a careful study of tithing in the Old Testament, here's what you will find. Under Moses, it was not a tithe, it was tithes, plural. There was actually three of them. And if you put them together, it was worship plus the welfare of the entire nation, the caring for one another, the operation of the ministry of the nation, it was about actually 23%, 24%, these tithes, and one that was taken every third year. So the understanding here is when we talk about the law of the tithes, that was a specific legislation for the people of God under Moses. But now listen to this. 700 years before Moses, there was a man by the name of Abraham. And Abraham, when he met Melchizedek, who was God's king in Jerusalem, and he was a priest of the Most High God, we're told that Abraham gave tithes to that representative of God. This is 700 years before Moses. Then we're told of his grandson Jacob as he had started out to trust the Lord he entered into a covenant with the Lord that he would give a tithe of all that he was given by the Lord so the principle of the tithe predates the Old Testament law of Moses by hundreds of years hundreds of years but now That's not really what I want you to consider. Because when we talk about giving, when we as God's kids talk about giving, as children of our Lord, as people under this covenant made in Christ, we're not bound by the law. (laughs) We're not bound by the law. 
Jesus said it is finished and it was completed in him. All the laws, demands were completed in him. All the types fulfilled in him. We're not bound by the law. What are we? We're freed by grace. (laughs) Now, let me ask you. Which do you think is a higher standard? (laughs) Law or grace? It's not even really about a standard. Because if you know the grace of God, if you've been born again, if you know that Jesus has given you eternal life. God has not spared His own Son for you. The Holy Spirit has come into your life and His love has been poured out into your heart. What happens when you're gripped that way? You throw the calculator away. You you don't figure it up on a machine and, and decide how much can I give or not give and still be on the good side of God. What are we thinking? We are the children of God. Jesus said, the Lord knows you have need of all these things. He knows you've got a house payment, a rent, groceries. Some of you are raising grandchildren that eat at your house or teenagers. That's like putting dirt in a hole. They never get filled up. God knows all about that. He knows our needs. So we don't base our response to God on what was written at Sinai. No. We respond to God as His Spirit speaks to us in a living way, motivates us by this principle Freely you have received. What? Freely give. Freely give. But he is the Lord. He does not change. He says, trust me. He says, test me. So here are three timeless personal applications. I give them to you and then we're, go- we're done. We're come to our communion. What should we do this morning Right now, as we, what would be applications we could make from this? Number one, I'm going to challenge you. Assess your priorities. Assess your priorities. As you take the cup and the bread this morning, give God first place. Is He first place in your life? Examine. Who's first in your life? Give God first place. Then also, make this application. As God has first place in my life, I want to give the first fruits to God. Not not my leftovers. I trust Him with the first fruits. Number two, application. Act on God's promise. Act on it. What is faith? What is faith? You know, you could say this. Faith is acting like God's telling the truth. He is telling the truth. It's when we act like he's telling the truth that we experience him. God says, trust me. God says, test me. Here's a question. Will you do that? Will you do that? You know one way people trust the Lord? 
Listen carefully to what I'm about to say, church. When you're in times of financial difficulty and hardship, and you're a member of a body of believers, do not suffer in silence. Let the body of Christ, let leaders know that you have needs. There is an abundance to meet every need in the family of God. See, this is how it works. It's, it's more blessed to give than to receive, yes. But for someone to have the blessing of giving, others have to have the blessing of what? Receiving. So if you here say, I'm in a situation I wouldn't even know how to imagine taking that step, then I want to encourage you, just talk to any of the elders, pastors, let us know what's going on. There will be no judgment. But I promise you, every child of God with whom we have responsibility will be cared for in this church. Everyone. That's how the body works. How are we able to do that? How are we able to meet needs? Because of those who give. Giving is not a test of our finances. Giving is a test of God's faithfulness. Amen. And a testimony of His faithfulness. It's not a test of our finances. It is saying, Lord, you're moving in my heart. I will respond. And I believe you're the God who will provide. And then it's a testimony for the Lord. Act on God's promise. Number three, anticipate God's provision. Anticipate God's provision. Friends, newsflash, God keeps his promises. He cannot lie. He keeps his promise. He will provide when we trust him. He will provide when we trust him with that which we so easily claim as our own. We will experience him. What's the ultimate motivation for our giving? What's, what's the motivation for our giving? Why? Shamed into it, pressured into it, guilted into it. If that's what's on your mind, as they say in the movies, forget about it. <laughs> that's not it at all. What's the motivation for our giving? Listen, his giving. His giving. And communion reminds us of that. It reminds us that we should be motivated in our giving by thanksgiving. Lord, thanks for your giving. 2 Corinthians 9.15 Let this be on your heart as we now come to communion. Thanks be to God. For his indescribable gift. His inexpressible gift. You know where that verse comes? It comes after two chapters where Paul's talked about an offering. Thank you Paul so much. But he says why do I challenge you so that you can experience this God. And why should we enter into this? It's thanks be to God. For his inexpressible gift. You know, I'll tell you something. By nature, listen, I'm a greedy man. 
I'm a greedy man. Do you know what opens up our greedy hands? You know what opens up our greedy hands? I know what opens up my greedy hand. Let me tell you what it is. It's the grip of grace. <laughs> when I'm gripped by God's grace for me in Christ, my grip on my stuff just opens up. But I have to constantly, in prayer, in reading the word, in worship, be reminded of God's grip of grace on me. And then, my grip releases. Let's take the cup. And I want us to prepare our hearts. Lord, search our hearts now. And in this moment, whatever you have given to us as individuals, I have... I don't know, Lord, but whatever you've given to us in your word and by your spirit, Lord, may we not let it slip. May we respond. But now we bless you, Lord. We have 10,000 reasons to do so. So even as we enter into communion, we bless the Lord.